The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, by a remarkable gift of grace, we can, as your people, sing that song and declare it to be true. You have shown us something marvelous, that Christ is Lord. And by mercy and grace, we see that, we say it now happily and willingly, knowing the fearsome truth that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess unhappily, angrily. Lord, that day is coming. That is a sad day, a real day, a sobering day. You will reign, and mercifully, kindly, graciously, you have opened our eyes today so that we see that and can say it with joy and delight, worshiping you for graciously saving us from the effects of that day. So we say now, you are Lord Jesus. Thank you. We ask you that you would extend the reign, that you would extend your lordship into the recesses of our hearts today. That you would conquer us just a little bit more. You open our eyes to see your goodness, your greatness. You would restrain us where we wander. You would move us where we lie down in despair. Give us hope. Encourage, strengthen our feeble hands. Father, do this today for the, the lifting up of the sun in our hearts, and would you give us the, the Spirit's power at work here in this room, even right now. Father, would you send the Spirit through this room, in this moment even, to to address each of us wherever there may be sin that holds us back, that would block what you would want to say, that would inhibit your moving in some way or another, wherever that is, whatever that is, would you, Spirit of God, would you put your finger on that right now and move us from it in repentance? Thank you for your goodness. Would you now lift up our eyes and cause us to see Christ? Cause us to see this one who is of surpassing worth. And cause us in Christ to see you, Father. A marvelous, marvelous God. Open our eyes, speak, cause us to see and cause us to rejoice. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the end of Philippians chapter 4, where we look again at a few verses we considered last week, as well as the very last verses of this book. We're going to be finishing the book of Philippians today. Since chapter 4, verse 10, Paul has been, as we've seen, thanking the church in Philippi for the gift that 
they sent him, the financial help that they sent him while he was in prison. They're partners with him in the gospel, and they partook with him in this ministry by, by helping him in that situation. And he stressed in the first paragraph his contentment, whether they had sent the gift or not. He wanted them to know that he was content with, with God and God at work in his life. So he was emphasizing that at first. And then, as we saw last week in the second paragraph, he particularly leaned on how gospel-driven giving, giving that is about the gospel, giving that is in partnership with the gospel, profits the giver. Actually profits the giver. While it is also worship of God, a pleasing sacrifice offered to him. So I'm giving a gift to, say, Paul in prison, but I'm actually offering up an offering to God. So it is profit to the giver and worship of God, and those are two reasons for them, and, and as we saw, for us to actually pursue giving for the sake of the gospel, for our own gain, for our treasure in heaven, and as an offering of worship to God to declare his worthship, seeking to honor him. So, give your resources, but really give yourself, give, give you away for the sake of the gospel. Give everything you are, give everything you have, and give believing, realizing, this is the last point from last week, that as some say, you can't outgive God. Verse 19 reminds us that God will supply every need of ours in Christ. There's verse 19 there towards the end of that paragraph. Paul says that to the Philippians, and in doing so, he's reversing the structure from earlier in the paragraph. The Philippians had given to him in his need, and now he's saying, my God will give to your, you in your need. So the usual way, you give to me, and then I give to you. You give to me, and I may not be able to give back to you, but my God. Maybe through other people's hands, but it's actually my God. God himself will give back to you and supply every need of yours. You will never find yourself in a spot where you needed something because you gave it away, and now you don't have it, oh no, God will cover every need. That's how verse 19 fits into the immediate context of the paragraph and the giving and the receiving between these two parties. God will cover their needs. He's speaking particularly about financial needs. However, I mentioned this last week, my God will supply every need of yours, pushes us beyond just the financial need in this giving and receiving situation. So we're going to be looking at this morning how this verse connects to the larger context of the whole letter, looking at every need, how it is that God meets, supplies every need of ours. And as we do so, we should understand, I think, it should take us to the place where it takes Paul, verse 20, to praise and rejoicing in God. So if I summarize this morning in a sentence, here's, here's where I'm going this morning. In one sentence. Rejoice in Christ, in whom God gives us all we need. That's what I'm after this morning. And really, I think that's a pretty good sentence to put over the whole book. Rejoice in Christ, in whom God gives us all that we need. So I'm going to be working towards that, making three observations from this, this final passage here this morning, but... First, let me read verses 19 through 23. In verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory 
in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The end of Philippians. I'll make three observations. Here's the first one. Our wealthy God will fill all our needs in Christ. Our wealthy God will fill all our needs in Christ. He's able, he's willing, and he will do it. Verse 19 begins, And my God will supply every need of yours. Paul says, my God, not, not as if Paul's God is different than their God, or if Paul's God is, is one of the gods. There's only one true God, and Paul's talking about him. But he's speaking of him because he, he thinks of him very personally, and he's trying to clarify, actually, God is the provider. As I said already, God's going to be the giver. Literally, God will fill. He will supply. Fill your needs. This God who is incredibly wealthy. Verse 19 talks about him supplying for the needs of his people, it says, according to his riches, that is, in a way that matches, that is, in accord with his riches, or a slightly better word for riches would be his wealth. Here, wealth instead of riches, and it's clearer that this is something singular. It's not, it's not multiple things. It's it's an entity, his wealth. This word is, is frequently used in the New Testament in relation to God, and it's related to the word that he just used about supply, and it comes from, its background is about fullness or completeness. So he just said, God will fill your needs according to his, we might say, his fullness, his wealth, his completeness, his abundance. So rather than the idea of, of an individual tangible treasure like, like $50 or a diamond, it's talking about his nature. He is wealthy. He's rich. Full. Complete. Topped off. He has no lack. He's not short of anything, let alone empty. He is incredibly wealthy. And you've got to think about this. Consider what it means that God is full and wealthy because that's what He is in accord with that. You've got to think about who He is because that's the one in accordance with that He's going to give to meet your needs. So you've got to start with Him. He himself is full in every way, consider a few. He has no moral lack. He is full of all goodness and all righteousness and all justice, completely so, without any shortcoming. And he is intellectually full. He is omniscient. He knows all things 
All things actual and all things possible. Every conceivable possible world with every conceivable possible twist and turn in that world, he knows all that could have been and knows all that is right now, all that was in this world, all that's going on, all that will be. He knows every intricate detail of it. He knows how it's all working together and why. He knows all is full of wisdom and understanding and, and completely accurately sees and gets it. Knows what it's for and where it's going. This that is. And he has no social lack as he interacts with what is. This is a God that is full, perfectly communal and relational. He is, he is wonderfully intimate and perfectly transcendent, both at the same time. That he is close and and in every single detail connected to you and reigns over the cosmos. Both. He is wealthy in grace as he deals with us and in kindness and in mercy. He is full of love. In perfection. He is fully capable. He is a God of all power. He can do everything that accords with His nature, with the nature of being God. He is creative. He made everything that is and continues to be creative. He is active, never lazy, never gets only half of what He intended to do done. He is full of drive and initiative, and he always accomplishes his purposes, and he always keeps his word, and he finishes everything that he starts. And as he interacts with us graciously and lovingly and wisely and powerfully, he is full of beauty. He is a God who is beautiful. Attractive and enticing and captivating and satisfying in every right way to the senses of a rightly ordered creature. I put that qualifier on there because he is disgusting to Satan. That's Satan's fault, not God's. To a rightly ordered sense, he is perfectly, completely satisfying. All of this, and and this is just a piece of what the fullness of God would be. Who can truncate God in all of his glory and speak of him in, in two minutes or five minutes? It's impossible. God, this is God in glory, full and complete, everything good and right that you can imagine, everything conceivable is in him. He's rich, wealthy. Rich in glory. All Paul can do is summarize this in one of the places where he uses this word in the New Testament, the end of Romans 11. He can only say, oh, the depth of the riches. And because he was talking about some complicated theology and the the knowledge, the understanding of the wisdom of God. Oh, the depth of his riches. The wealth of God is Vast. 
the fullness of, of an ocean. We stand at the shore of an ocean and we can see some bit of the shoreline and the horizon, the water falls off the end of the earth, it seems. But you know intellectually somewhere over there is Europe or Africa. Can you imagine an ocean that goes on forever? No, you, no, you can't actually because we all conceive of space, but what's beyond space? God. This way and this way and this way and this way. Full, wide, long, high, deep is the goodness of God. All of God in all of His glory. It is vast, it is incredible, and it leaves Him Himself full and infinitely happy. He is the blessed God. It's a word used twice in 1 Timothy, translated as blessed, but it's a, it's a word that means happy. Now we can use that word in, in trite ways, but when we're speaking about the blessed God, the happy God, the word is someone who's happy because of his circumstances. God has perfect circumstances. He is his own circumstance. He looks and says, look at me. I am it. I am the deal. And I am perfect. I am complete. I am full. I am delighted. I am happy. And then he looks upon his son. Yes, he knows of sin and destruction and evil and wickedness and judgment and wrath. Yes, for sure. And he also looks at his son, who is the perfect reflection of all of his fullness, and sees that son at work to reclaim and to renew and to cause every knee to bow and every tongue to confess, Lord. And he says, wow, I am happy. I know where this is going and I know why it's going. And it is going to a really good place my fullness covering all of the earth and all of the creation as the waters cover the sea, rightly so. And he smiles. He is a God of vast wealth and because of that, of infinite happiness and pleasure and contentment and delight. This is the Lord. He has all that he needs Himself, he is impossibly, limitlessly rich. And we, right now, are not. Now these things connect. But the part that I'm, I'm coming to, we are not, you can't go there until you've sat in this first part and soaked in it. And, and I, I, am, I am well aware of, of the hundred problems with me trying to articulate the wealth of God. I hope that in some way I, I laid just a piece of it in front of you and caused you to wonder at it and to think, what more is there? And how is that? Because your mind must, it must go, God, what? How? Tell me, teach me, show me. Because that wealthy God grasped is what connects to and me lacking. We are a people of great need. We are, everything that God is, we are the opposite. 
We have need and we face shortage and difficulty and challenge and uncertainty and we are physically, emotionally, spiritually weak in the face of all of it. We're just little bitty people. And God will meet, this is the fact of the verse, He will meet all, every need, every sort of need. And that's what causes Paul to burst forth in this praise in verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. He's thinking about the every need. That's not just the conclusion to the thank you note. That's a, a grandiose conclusion to the thank you note. It's not. It's the end of the letter. Because Paul was talking here in the thank you note and then has gone and to actually meet every need. Oh, glory to God. He'll meet every need. The material ones, like the Philippians face, yes, but more. Every need that Paul pointed out to the Philippians all throughout the letter, all the needs that we share. We could go back through the letter and sometimes camouflaged in prayer requests or in commands, we have to think about it a little bit. We could see need upon need upon need upon need that the Philippians face, that we face, that we have. I suppose we could categorize them in two ways. We, we face needs in this world as sinners and as sufferers, both. We can walk through the letter and we can see things like we need salvation first and foremost. We are sinners in need of saving, and then of sanctifying in countless ways. As chapter 1 talks about the need for our love to abound for one another. We have a need there. It talks about unity, and then one-mindedness, and the need in chapter 2 to consider the needs of others above ourselves. Another need. A shortage that we have. To do all things without grumbling or questioning, and to put no confidence in the flesh. Chapter 3. And to not love the world, all of our needs as sinners, run through the book of Philippians. And we are sufferers. We are people who live here at the whim of other people. Careless people. Cruel people. We're at the mercy of a broken creation and compounding innocent errors of humankind. With bodies that decay and are limited and we have no power to do anything about most of this. We are weak people. We, we are suffering people. The Philippians are called to contend for the gospel in the midst of a hostile, persecuting Roman Empire through no sin of their own. In fact, because they are not sinning, they bring themselves into a place where persecution bears down on them and they suffer. And they have to, they have to bear up under that with, with an attitude of joy and gracious demeanor while being hurt. We, like them, face needs as sufferers. Sinners and sufferers, what are your needs? What are they? Maybe something immediate leaps to mind. That good. Maybe something immediate and concrete, some material need, some health concern. Good. There, there's a need, and that's a real need. But thinking about this letter broadly, it's going to point us beyond 
simple material things, simple, easy to identify concrete things, which are real and are included here, but Paul's great concern for this church and for this church, Paul's great concern can be captured by the one thing he wrote about in chapter 1, verse 27. The one thing I want to hear about in relation to you is that you live as citizens worthy of the gospel. That's your need. That's what I want to hear. So church, how's that going? What's your need in regards to that? As citizens worthy of the gospel. Think about your spiritual needs. What do you need God to grow, God to develop, to change in you? Could well be some of the things that I just listed. There are many other things in this book, and there are things not in this particular book of Philippians that that are included more broadly in the Bible. Where do you need and find yourself lacking? Sinner and sufferer, falling short in your attitude or actions or demeanor or hopes in your heart. The first point is God's statement to you. I am a God of vast wealth. I am full. And I will fill that need. Whatever it is, whatever you just wrote down, I will fill it. I'm full. I will fill it in Christ. That's the second observation. As I'm moving to the second observation, I was thinking, this is actually providential. It's, it's troublesome for those who might want to sit in the first row. So the light shines in but it's providential to consider this. Behind that, right there, there's a bright, shining sun. There is a glory that shines. It would shine into this room through what? Through past the cross. Think about this this morning. There are a lot of us who are in this room all the time. We're in here for basketball games. We're in here for school programs. We're in here for church services. We're in this room a lot. Maybe, this, maybe you can capture this in your mind and realize something. What shines in here, the glory that shines in here, comes only through the cross. God says, I will meet all your needs. I will. I am a shining full light. I will come to you and fill you through the cross only in Christ. This is the second point. Our wealthy God fills up our needs in Christ, which is why Christ is the focus of life. That's the second point. Our wealthy God fills up our needs in Christ, which is why Christ is the focus of life. This God is vast, He is everything. And he's outside there. He is away from us, kept back by a wall until he comes through the wall at the cross. In Christ, he fills needs. 
What does it look like? Well, it's actually easier than it may seem because it's more simple. It's not as complex as it may seem. I asked you to list out your needs. Maybe you did actually with a paper and pencil, but maybe you just thought in your life, these are some of my needs. I articulated a few of the needs from the book. Just walked through, picked out a couple of the biggies. You can take all these needs and you can funnel them into 127 to live as a citizen worthy of the gospel. But it doesn't stop there. All of our needs and all of our shortfalls and all of our struggles, even that one sentence, are really just an extension of one great struggle and one great shortfall, which is captured by what I think are probably the two best-known statements in this book. Now, there's a lot of well-known things in Philippians, so there may be other candidates, but Paul's two best-known statements, I think, capture our great need. Think of it like this. To live is not try to love people more and attend to their needs more and live a life worthy of the gospel by contending for it and being unified and doing all things without grumbling and shining like a light and avoiding putting confidence in the flesh and resisting the world and working on being rejoicing and not being anxious and praying more and treating others with gracious demeanor. This is getting long. Those are just the things from Philippians specifically. Then you add in the other things that you have needs. That's a long list. Is that what I am to do? No. To live is Christ. To live is Christ. That is, second statement, whatever gain I had, I count as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. In order to have more of Him, I regard everything else that I have, I discard it as rubbish by comparison. My every need and your every need, Christian, everything listed out, summarized, a citizen worthy of the gospel, is really just beneath the great need. My great need is to treasure Christ above all else. And our wealthy God will supply that need. Our wealthy God will work in you so that you come to treasure Christ above all else. And then flowing backwards, if you treasure Christ above all else, that will be a life worthy of the Gospel and everything else will be met. Christ is the center of your heart the focus of your eyes, the thing you chase hard after, Him. If I have Christ, I have God. And so I have God's wealth because Paul says, and my Bible is on the very next page, Colossians 1.19, in Christ all the fullness of God dwells bodily. God's fullness is in Christ And Christ has been given to me, the fullness of God given to me. In Christ, I have the ocean delivered to you. Or perhaps, flip it, you dropped in it. And it's soaking into you moment by moment. Not completely yet. You're not done. You're not completely mature. But it is soaking into you and you are being wet to the bone. You will be one day mature. 
Do you see this? Because it is the whole issue. You have to see this. Paul is completely consumed with Christ. It's impossible to read this book and not see that he is about Christ. Why? Because in Christ, everything is met. Everything. Every need. Every lack. Every gap is bridged. Every pothole is filled up. In Christ, everything is renewed, made new, completed. Fullness is yours in Christ. Now, I'm not talking to every single person about what has already happened to you. I'm talking to Christians about what has happened to you. God sent His Son to the earth. This is Philippians chapter 2. He sent God to earth to become a man. To become a servant. To die. To die on the cross. To remove off of you sin and to make you a new creation in Christ. To unite you to Christ and make you new. To move in, take up residence, and begin to fill you up with Himself. That is a glorious thing. It's a glorious thing. We face need and we doubt it will be met. And so we fear and seek a host of other empty remedies. A tragedy. Sometimes the seeking of the other remedies is actually the pursuit. It leads us to actions and paths of life. And sometimes you can't even tell because the person's sitting right in the fourth row, the third seat in, smiling, and inside, churning. Maybe that's you. Churning. You haven't overtly chased something else, but the fact that you're churning and not resting reveals need that I don't think is met. Where can I find it? 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 Smiling. Tragedy. Brothers and sisters, tragedy. If you are a new creation in Christ, if Christ lives in you, this is a couple weeks ago, God, the wealthy God, has moved in and is in the process of working in you, Philippians 2.13, working in you to will and to work according to His good pleasure. You are an object of His gracious attention. He's right there. Don't turn away and walk off. But instead, Philippians 2.12, right before it, you then work. Not to be saved. No, 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 no. Because you are saved. Because He is at work. The two verses together are very clear. We work out our salvation for, because God is at work. To will and to work. God is at work in here to change your will, to change your, the direction of your efforts. 
How? What, how does he do that? How does he do that? Are you filling in the blank? How does he do that? Well, how do you change people's desires? You who don't have omnipotence over somebody else's brain, over their heart, how do you, how do you change desires? How do you teach a 10-year-old kid to eat broccoli? Well, there are lots of ways, of course, but one of the ways my grandmother taught me was cheese. <laughs> so, did somebody say that? Somebody, you said that? <laughs> she put cheese on it and ate the cheese and accidentally got some of the broccoli. <laughs> and then I realized that wasn't actually so bad. Now, the analogy falls apart here because I wasn't thinking like this as a 10-year-old, but, but then a little bit of cheese, a little less cheese, maybe a little bit of salt and pepper, and broccoli is actually pretty good. And oh, broccoli is good for me? I didn't realize that. A little bit more information comes into the picture. And then I realize that I actually kind of like it, and it's good for me, and it's maybe less expensive than an, alt- an alternate option. I like broccoli now. The analogy falls apart, of course, but we who have no power over people can change people's wills by how we present things and what additional information we bring to bear to show them this actually is better than you thought. It actually is good for you. And we have no power over anybody. God, who is much different than us, who has power over our insides, not just over what happens on the outside, can present things to us and then, here's the part that God can do that we cannot, Pull away blinders off of eyes so that we see. Here is Christ presented to the world, and all of the world said, Kill him! Blind. And God in grace pulls off your blinders and says, Glory, the Son. To live is Christ. The surpassing treasure, this great worth in this one. How did you come to that conclusion? God pulled away blinders and showed you the glory of God in this Son presented to you, changing your life, changing your heart, changing how you see the world, changing what you want. God in power at work in you to will and to work. So then you believe and work for your salvation, but because of that, for it is God who is at work. God works in us. God fills up our needs by drawing us to Christ. And how does He draw us to Christ? He pulls away the blinders and shows us His glory. This saving Son, this One who is the definition of love, the definition of goodness, the definition of mercy, who is omnipotent, in whom all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. You're blind to Him until He pulls away the blinders and you see, and then you cannot help yourself but love Him because He is glorious. 
God meets our needs. God Himself fills up our lack by showing us Christ who is the answer, who is the one who draws us to God, who is the one who connects us to everything that God is. And that is a work of God in us. It is not me myself doing it. It is Him at work. Bless His holy name, which is exactly what Paul does in verse 20, which leads me to the third point. Altogether, let us praise and rejoice in our God always. And again I say, rejoice. Altogether, let us praise and rejoice in our God always. And again I say, rejoice. And I say altogether as a way of capturing a little bit of verses 21, 22, and 23. That is a a very typical closing to a letter, and it's pretty brief in this letter because I think he already senses at verse 20, I ended. and needs to say goodbye. So he tacks on 21, 2, and 3. Rather brief. But we do see in this little closing a reminder of a, of a great reality, a reminder of the reality of the church. Because none of this that we're talking about happens on an island of one. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. All the people in Philippi, the body. The brothers who are with me greet you. Again, a body. All the saints greet you, many people, especially those of Caesar's household. You catch that? That's an interesting little drop. especially those who live in the enemy's house. The brothers who are there, they greet you too. They are especially eager to say hello. Yes, it is individual. 2023, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been talking about the grace of Christ. Be with your spirit. He the body is made up of individuals indeed, but there is a body here. This is a this is a corporate letter coming from Paul and a people, to a people, to, to you individually, but to a people. There is a, there is a body at work here that is, even in its existence and in its expansion, proof of the fact that God in Christ is winning the world, even from Caesar's household. So there is a body here, and I want to... I want to make a nod towards that and say, all together, us as a group, let us all shout out verse 20's exclamation, to our God and Father be glory forever. But you won't shout that until you believe it. And so really, first I have to plead with you these first two points about God being a God of wealth and God meeting our needs in Christ. I, I say that and I suspect that Every Christian kind of says, in some way, yes. Hopefully encouraged by it, but in, but in some way, yes, I know that. Not, I just learned that. I know it. And I, I need to plead with you to move one step beyond just knowing it to actually believing it and giving yourself to it. And, and maybe think of it like this. Something happens in us 
You ever had a, a bathtub post-bath, and, and one of those tubs that doesn't have the, the stopper on the side, but has a little rubber stopper that sticks in the hole in the bottom? Full of water, and you pick up the stopper, and what do you feel right there as you pick it up? A little bit of suction. It wants to go back down to the hole. Just right there. A little bit of boop, and you hear a little bit of the gurgle of the water and goes boop, right back into the hole. That, that little right there, like there's like an inch, right there, maybe half an inch, the little spot right there where you pull up the stopper and some of the yuck is about to drain out, just starts to right back in. And you pull it up again and a little bit of drain right back in. I just said something about the wealthy God and your need and him meeting it in Christ and showing you who he is. And it is just possible that, that it just rose up a little bit and some of the yuck began to drain out. And for a moment, you almost believed, almost believed that he is that good and that he is that much for you and that if he is for you, who can be against you? It was almost right back in. So what I have to pray for you and then ask you to do, I pray for you that God will rip it away from the hole and let all of it drain out and that you will with resolve hold on to the stopper and not let it go back in. Both together. You can't just sit there and say, oh God, change me. You have to believe. The command to us in the scriptures: believe. Turn to him. Trust him. And God must do it. Both together. If that's a conundrum, okay. Believe. Pull out the stopper. Let it all drain out and believe that this God is the God of great wealth and in Christ will fill you. Who have you in heaven and what do you desire on earth besides him? Not a thing. Not a thing, not a thing. It's true. And believing that, then let us all together exclaim to our God and Father, be glory forever. Do you notice what he's called? To our God and Father. Our. That's personal. Not to the God. That's fine, too. That's fair. He is the God of heaven and earth. He is the Lord Almighty. He is the maker of heaven and earth who reigns and is coming, and he is gloriously yours. That God in Christ is yours. And he is more than just a God. He is a Father to you. Much is made in modern conversation about how we who come from messed up homes don't understand fatherhood because we don't understand good fathers. I suppose that's true, but the whole conversation assumes that we know what good and bad fathers are. You know what a good father is. This one is awesome. This one is awesome. He is a father to you. How good and sweet it is to live under the shelter of the wings of a God and Father like this one, who is vastly wealthy, who is all complete and good, 
who is delighted and happy, who scoffs at the day of evil and smiles at the future that is coming and spreads his wing over you and says, you are mine, I am not leaving you, I am not forsaking you, I will never abandon you, you are not getting away from this love. Nothing can take you out of my hands. That is a good father, the father that you want and the one that you have who says, I will give you all that I am in Christ. Oh, rest and rejoice and proclaim to him glory. Can you not see that this is the recipe for happiness? The God of great wealth means the happiness of people. That is a good thing. That is the answer to everything. Sometimes I think we really could summarize all of our problems by saying, God is a God of great wealth for me in Christ, my Father. I don't believe that. That's why I have problems. Sometimes I think it's really that simple. Now, I'm not saying that's going to solve the Roman Empire's persecution or cancer. I'm saying it's going to solve the problem of the Roman Empire's persecution and the problem in cancer. The fear and the unbelief, the fact that I might be abandoned to the grave, you won't be. If they throw you to the lions, if the cancer gets you, you go to glory to be with this God. To die is gain. That's true. To live is Christ and to die is gain. What else is this book about? What else is true in life? Nothing. So to this God and our great Father, the God of wealth for you in Christ, to His name be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, bless Your holy name and cause us to worship and rejoice and rest. Build Your church and build up the individual people in your church. Make us whole and full, happy. Oh, this is a tall order because we are a people of need, but we can ask it because you are a God of wealth. So come and build us up in Christ, I pray and plead and say thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.